Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there. My name is Sam Maxwell, and welcome to the Bedford & Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the research process of the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series I am developing. Today, we bring on, once again, B.K. Burrow historian Ron Schweiger to the program, and uh, the last time he talked about his Dodgers roots, and but without the Dodgers roots, without Brooklyn's roots, there is no Dodgers roots. And that is what he will be joining us to talk about today is Brooklyn and the history. Ron, welcome. Come on, come on on. Okay, I'm here, Sam. How you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you. Excellent. Well, let's get right to it. Without Brooklyn, without the way the city uh, developed, without the way the borough developed, and without the way the land developed, there would be no Dodgers. So let's go all the way back to the beginning when the glaciers swept across North America and created Long Island. Do you want to talk a little bit about about how the land formed that is Brooklyn now? Well, um, the land was already there during the glacial period, uh, you know, many, many thousands of years ago. But during the last ice age, the very southern end of the glacier that covered North America, um, it ended right where Long Island is. In fact, Brooklyn and Queens, the two two of the five boroughs of New York City, are actually on Long Island. Um, I have some old postcards around the turn of the century, and instead of saying um, Brooklyn, New York, it says Flatbush, Long Island, or Sheepshead Bay, Long Island, because geographically, Brooklyn is the western tip of Long Island. And when the glacier stopped its southern movement, it stopped right in the center of what is today Brooklyn, Queens, Lasso, and Suffolk County of Long Island. And as the ice slowly began to melt and recede, it dropped what scientifically is known as the terminal moraine, which is the rocks, the boulders, anything that was carried by the glacier was just dropped. And this became a ridge stretching from Brooklyn um, through Queens, right through the spine of Long Island. And in fact, the neighborhood in Brooklyn is known as Bay Ridge or Crown Heights. Uh, and these are the high points um, in, in Brooklyn. And that's, that's the reason. I lived on the Eastern, Ice Age. I lived, I lived on the Eastern Parkway, and I, I, you could tell from, from different angles, it looked uh, down, for, for instance, from Washington Avenue, where the Brooklyn Museum is, you could see pretty clearly the skyline of, of Manhattan in the Chrysler building specifically. Um, That's right. When I looked, if, if you drive down, for example, Bedford Avenue, which is where Bed, uh, Ebbets Field was located, and you're driving, let's say, north up Bedford, um, when you get to Eastern Parkway, you're, you're going on a slight incline. When you get to Eastern Parkway, you've reached the high point, and then on the other side, and that's the neighborhood of Crown Heights, by the way, you're going downhill. And that eastern parkway is the spine. That's where the southern end of the glacier uh, was located before it started to recede and melt. It's, and that's it's why so, it's so high, so the eastern parkway. I'm sorry? It's so, it's so fascinating because we sometimes take for granted exactly how the land was shaped, but it, it really is a, a big reason as to why and how New York City formed because of the harbor and the way the land is shaped and, and how isolated Manhattan can be 
it, it, it's the way we've, we've built from how the land was formed because of the glacier. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Now, uh, after once the glaciers formed, obviously, uh, the uh, Native Americans uh, landed here first. Um, so what, what, what were some of the, the tribes that, that ha- uh, habitated Brooklyn? Well, um, the main tribe was known as the Canarsie Indians. You also had the, the Rockaway Indians. Um, and these were branches of the main uh, group of Indians in the northeast part of, the, of New York State, uh, which was the Algonquin or the Iroquois Indians. And the, the Canarsies, and there's a neighborhood in Brooklyn called Canarsie. Um, and in Brooklyn, you have Rockaway Avenue, Rockaway Parkway. In Queens, there's a neighborhood called the Rockaways. Um, and this is related to the Indians that, that were the first inhabitants of, uh, of Brooklyn. And it was and the Canarsie Indians, by the way, mm-hmm. that sold, um, that's in quote, unquote, sold in 200 separate land deals what we now call Brooklyn or Kings County to the Dutch back in the 1600s and early 1700s. And, uh, and as they say, the rest is history. And when I say they sold the land, the Indians didn't believe in land ownership. They accepted um, artifacts, items in trade to allow the Dutch to use the land. Because the land, they said, belonged to everybody. Now, of course, the Dutch started to build their their houses of wood from the trees in the forest that Brooklyn was covered with, and uh, started to build fences. The Indians had no idea what a fence was. And some of these fences blocked uh, entrances to where their hunting grounds were, and this led to quite a few skirmishes and battles. Um, Because the Dutch, of course, they believed they actually owned the land that they so-called purchased, and the Indians didn't understand land ownership. They felt the land belonged to everybody. And uh, that was the beginning of the end of the Indians, because it led to a lot of skirmishes. So what are some of the original towns that the Dutch popped up? Well, the original Kings County uh, included five Dutch towns and one English town. The Dutch towns were Brooklyn, spelled the Dutch way, B-R-E-U-K-E-L-E-N, which is named after the Dutch town of Brooklyn in the Netherlands, where the Dutch came from. So you had Brooklyn, which of course became Brooklyn. And by the way, that town, Brooklyn, was at the northwest part of Brooklyn, today's downtown Brooklyn, Brooklyn Heights area, uh, where Borough Hall is located. That was the town of Brooklyn. Then you had Boswick, and in Dutch, Bos, B-O-S, means woods. And Boswick became, when the English took over in 1664, the Boswick became Bushwick, or town in the woods. And then you had Vlakbos, V-L-A-C-K-B-O-S. There's the Bos again. And that was a wooded plain. And Vlakbos became Flatbush. That's the English uh, um, change. And then you had um, New Amersfoort named after the Dutch town of, New Am- of Amersfoort in the Netherlands. And today I live in New Amersfoort, which today is known as Flatlands, because the land was very flat, and the English, of course, called it Flatlands. Then you had the Dutch town of New Utrecht, named after 
Utrecht in the Netherlands. And ironically, New Utrecht is the only one that re- retains the Dutch name today. All the other the Dutch names of the towns have changed. But New Utrecht really isn't the neighborhood anymore like the others are. New Utrecht today is divided into the neighborhoods of Bay Ridge, Bensonhurst, Borough Park, um, Diker Heights, Fort Hamilton. Uh, all, all that was changed um, as time went on, as developers came in, bought up land from the farmers. So in New Utrecht, the name remains, but not as a, a neighborhood anymore. Um, there's a New Utrecht High School. My mother went to New Utrecht High School back in the 1930s. But, and the, the, the only English town was Gravesend. And the Dutch gave permission for a woman from England, her name was Lady Deborah Moody, to develop an English town. And today, Gravesend still exists as a neighborhood and has nothing to do with a grave, by the way. Uh, Gravesend was a, uh, a summer resort area along the shore in England. And today, it's a resort. Well, a century ago, it was a big resort area in Brooklyn. So Gravesend so today is Seagate. Coney Island, Brighton Beach, Sheepshead Bay, Manhattan Beach, all along the shore. Coney Island. So when when did the English take over? Uh, from the English Russian took over and... in 1664. And all of Brooklyn was named Kings County by, by the uh, English in 1683. And uh, okay. if we jump ahead to um, 1834, um, Brooklyn... Um, the town of Brooklyn, which was had grown in population, uh, petitioned uh, the state ca- uh, state capital up in Albany for a, pet- a petition to become a city, to get a charter to become a city, and that was granted. But much to the chagrin of the city of New York, which was Manhattan, because New York, Manhattan, feared the economic and political ri- rivalry if Brooklyn became a city. So Brooklyn. Not all of Brooklyn, not all of King County, but only the downtown area, the Brooklyn Heights area. That became the city of Brooklyn. And, and as time went expand, yeah. That's what I was getting to. Um, by 1851, the town of Williamsburg, spelled with an, uh, a G-H at the end, Williamsburg in 1851 had a population of 35,000 people, just Williamsburg. And it was granted a charter to become a city in 1851. Four years later, in 1855, the mayor of the city of Williamsburg was corrupt. And in today's politics, that's quite common. (laughs) So the city, uh, the mayor of the city of Brooklyn approached him and said, listen, you're likely going to be indicted. Give up your mayorship and the city of Brooklyn will annex Williamsburg. So in 1855, the city of Brooklyn annexed the city of Williamsburg and the towns of Bushwick and Greenpoint. That's the northern end of Brooklyn. And that began, you might say, the imperialistic moves <laughs> of the city of Brooklyn. It, as it time went as on... I'm sorry? They, it, no, I was going to say it sounds as if in 1898, uh, when, they, when they all merged into the city of New York, it sounds as if... Brooklyn was really just starting to come into its own as a, as its own city. Yes, absolutely. Well, actually, what really caused that uh, to really uh, grow rapidly was the opening of the um, 
Brooklyn Bridge in 1883. That connected the two cities. I mean, really connected it. Because the only way prior to 1883 to get from uh, the city of New York to the city of Brooklyn was by boat. And uh, the Brooklyn Bridge eased that. And it also increased the population of Brooklyn. Because now people in Manhattan, New York City, were able to easily come into Brooklyn and start to expand into the lands of the farmers. And developers started to um, buy up the farmland because it became more profitable for the, um, for the farmers to sell their farmland than to actually farm it. And, uh, and that's how Brooklyn started its, uh, its, its expansion into uh, a bigger population. Getting to uh, some specific areas of Brooklyn, I wanted to talk a little bit about Greenwood Cemetery, which is uh, one of the higher points of Brooklyn. Uh, In fact, it is. What what is Greenwood Cemetery's history? Well, uh, as you know, every day people are born and people die. (laughs) And uh, Greenwood opened officially in 1838. And uh, it is geographically topographically, the highest point in Brooklyn. It is about, I think, 216 feet um, in elevation at its highest point. Um, a lot of people think that Prospect Park has the highest point because there is a, um, a portion of Prospect Park called Lookout Hill, and that is quite high, but it's 183 feet. So it's not quite as high as Greenwood. And uh, in the uh, years, in the 1800s, um, um, Young men who were courting their young ladies in their little uh, horse and wagons would enter the gates of Greenwood Cemetery in the evening and just drive down with their horse and buggies down these narrow lanes in the cemetery, which was gorgeous with trees and shrubbery and flowers and lakes um, amidst the gravestones. And it was just a gorgeous setting, and they would uh, court their dates there. And... uh, and I don't know if people do that today, but you can just walk into that cemetery, stroll around, look at these magnificent uh, gravestones that are, some of them are just so ornate, and some are so simple. I mean, it's a non-sectarian cemetery, and you have the likes of Leonard Bernstein buried there, um, who was the, um, the leader of the New York Symphony Orchestra. And uh, he was Jewish, but there are so many Jews and non-Jews buried there as well. Uh, there's Civil War soldiers buried there. Um, um, Samuel Morse from the Morse Code is buried there. Courier and Ives are buried there. And Charles Ebbets, the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers and the builder of Ebbets Field, uh, he's buried there. Um, those of you uh, who are from Brooklyn, and remember the Ebinger Bakery. Uh, the Ebinger family, Arthur Ebinger, is buried there, pretty close to Charles Ebbets, and also uh, Leonard Bernstein is pretty close there. In fact, my wife and I bought a plot in Greenwood uh, about five years ago, and hopefully we won't use it for a long time, but our plot is relatively close to Charles Ebbets and Ebinger and Bernstein. So when the time comes, Charlie and I are going to talk baseball, as I wear my Brooklyn Dodger shirt and hat, and uh, we'll have some Ebenezer's Blackout cake, and Leonard Bernstein can lead his orchestra. What were they? <laughs> oh, that 
that sounds like a plan. Well, uh, hopefully it, it won't is, happen for a long time. Hopefully it won't. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, your mouth to God's ears, sir. That's right. Um, so going back to the turn of the century, uh, the way that after it was uh, the, the, the cities united, um, the way the the neighborhoods were still building out, uh, it wasn't completely urban, uh, um, urbanized like it is right now, right away. Um, right. So what what exactly, uh, let's say, uh, a neighborhood like Flatbush, where Ebbets Field was eventually built up, what, what did that look like around the turn of the century, uh, the 20th century? Okay, around the turn of the century, the village or town of Flatbush was a flourishing town. Um, it had a town hall, which was built in 1875, and by the way, which is still standing, uh, not as a town hall anymore, but it's still standing, a beautiful Gothic architecture. Um, um, by the way, Erasmus Hall High School, which is on Flatbush Avenue, right near Church Avenue, which is, by the way, the center of the Dutch town of Flatbush. Okay? Um, Erasmus High School was already there, um, and was opened in 1787. That's 1787. It is the second oldest secondary school in the, in the United States. I believe the oldest one is in the Boston area. Um, Barbara Streisand went to uh, Erasmus High School. Um, and uh, uh, Bobby Fischer, the chess champion, and Donnie Most from uh, um, what's uh, the show with uh, Henry Winkler. Um, oh, my mind is going. <laughs> Happy days. Happy days, right. Donnie Most went to Erasmus, and so many more, so many wonderful people in all fields um, attended high schools in Brooklyn. Sandy Koufax went to Lafayette High School. But let's get back to Flatbush. Um, Flatbush was a flourishing town at the turn of the century, and there was a railroad that opened in 1878, a steam railroad called the Flatbush the uh, Brooklyn, Flatbush, and Coney Island Railroad. And this tr these tracks ran on the street, and it ran from Prospect Park all the way down to the shore in Coney Island, Brighton Beach. Hmm. And this these tracks on the street, steam railroad with the big steam locomotives like you see in the old-time movies. And it ran along uh, what's today East 16th Street from Prospect Park all the way down to Coney Island and Brighton Beach. And uh, that rail line today is the, the subway line, the B and the Q train that runs through Brooklyn. Hmm. And that train line back at the turn of the century, um, and remember the Brooklyn Bridge had already opened, and many people don't realize this, the Brooklyn Bridge had trains on it originally, trains and trolleys and horses and wagons and pedestrians. Um, the trains on the bridge were eliminated, I believe, in the 1940s and the trolleys too, and those tracks were gone, and the roadbed was widened for car, and car traffic. So what happened was developers came and started to buy up the farmland in Flatbush, starting around the 1890s. And the reason they did is that train line gave a link to Manhattan, because you can go across the Brooklyn Bridge into Manhattan on, by train. So developers started to buy up the land right around the tracks and started to build these magnificent turn-of-the-century 
Victorian and Queen Anne and Georgian, Edwardian, Greek Revival, Colonial Revival, Tudor-style homes um, on either side of the tracks. And today, I would say 98% of these homes that were built 110, 112 years ago are still standing. And, uh, and of the 11 neighborhood associations along these tracks today, five have already been designated as New York City Historic Districts which means the owners of the homes cannot in any way change the exterior of the home. They can paint it, but the paint has to be, the color has to be okay by the New York City Landmarks Commission. The remaining six that are not landmarked are right now um, in the process of being surveyed by the New York City Landmarks Commission so that hopefully they too will be landmarked. And it's just a beautiful tree-lined streets right in the heart of Brooklyn. And this hopefully was developed they're all because landmarked. of the train line that was there. And, and the whole landmark thing is it's interesting uh, thing to discuss because it all kind of comes back to Ebbets Field being torn down, Penn Station being torn down. It's, it's the, you know, those, uh, a couple of, of those are the reasons why things are designated landmarks now because otherwise there's somebody who doesn't, who comes in and doesn't care about any of this stuff. Right. I mean, Ebbets Field was torn down five years too soon because the landmarks, New York City Landmarks Commission wasn't, wasn't established until 1965, and Ebbets Field was torn down in 1960, three years um, uh, after the last game played there, which was on September 24th, 1957, which incidentally so the Dodgers won 2 nothing. <laughs> going back to the beginning of Ebbets Field in 1913, and, and uh, Charlie Evans started to have the idea probably around 1908, and uh, begin to look at that, that area. What exactly did he find when he went looking for the plots of land at the, the uh, Bedford and Sullivan spot? Um, what, what, what exactly did the neighborhood, uh, what, what exactly was the neighborhood starting to look like at the time? Well, where Ebbets Field was built, when uh, Charlie Ebbets started looking for land um, to replace the ballpark the Dodgers were playing in, which was called Washington Park, in the uh, Park Slope Gowanus area, um, which was an old wooden ballpark, and uh, it was not in great shape. And he wanted a larger ballpark on a larger piece of land to seat many, many more people. And he found this area right on the Flatbush Crown Heights border. And this, the area really was, uh, I guess you might call it a wasteland, it was known as Pig Town. And there were wooden shacks, it was muddy. Um, I wouldn't really call it a neighborhood or community at that time. This was around 1910, 1911 or so. And um, he didn't have, Ebbets didn't have the money to build a brand new modern steel and concrete ballpark. So he found two brothers, contractors, Edward and Stephen McKeever, and they had the money. He offered them 50% stock in the team, which they accepted. And with their money, they were able to build Ebbets Field. However, when they were are going around buying up the property in Pigtown in various, to various owners who own various parts of the area there, um, they didn't lead on as to what they intended to do with the land. Because if they would told the, the sellers of the land what they were going to build, they would have to probably pay a much higher price than they did. I'm not sure what they paid for the land, but it cost the McKeevers 
$750,000 to build Ebbets Field. And uh, back in those days, that was a lot of money. And uh, the original blueprints have tremendous, beautiful detail as to the construction of that ballpark. So by the time that it opened up in 1913, um, would you say that there were already starting to be developers um, branching out from Ebbets Field in terms of the urbanization of the area? Uh, yes, because uh, you had this tremendous attraction now. You had Ebbets Field, and by the way, the, you had a subway line, um, the Brighton Beach Line, which was the Brooklyn Flappers and Coney Island Railroad originally that, that I mentioned. Um, I remember as a kid, um, my brother and I, when we went to Ebbets Field, we lived in, in the Gravesend neighborhood, and our subway station was the King's Highway Station. And I remember my mother told us, um, when you go to the ballpark, if you get the express, it was called the Brighton Express back then, it didn't have numbered or lettered names like it has today. Um, if you get the express, it's three stops to Prospect Park. If you get the local, it's nine stops to Prospect Park. And you get off at Prospect Park, you come up the stairs to the street level, and you just follow the crowd. And uh, about two and a half blocks away, you see the front edifice of Ebbets Field. And you just follow the crowd. You cross Flappish Avenue and dodge the trolley cars. because the Well, let's see. The, the last trolleys in Brooklyn were 1956. So when I went to Ebbets Field in 55, 56, 57, uh, there were still trolleys up until, 50, let's see, um, the Flappish Avenue trolley, I think, stopped in 1951. So when I went there, there were no trolleys on Flappish Avenue. But the Church Avenue and the McDonald Avenue trolleys were the last two lines to run in Brooklyn, 1956. And how long uh, were the trolleys in existence? Oh, the trolleys started off by being pulled by horses before there was electricity. I have a picture from um, 1907 uh, with a horse-drawn trolley on Church Avenue during the winter. Um, and uh, the Flappish Avenue trolley was there in the 1870s, pulled by horses, and was run by the Brooklyn City Railroad Company. It was called the Flappish Avenue Line. I have a, a book called um, Tales of Old Flatbush, and in the book, is a an artist's rendering of a trolley pulled by horses on Flappish Avenue. And on the top of the trolley, it says, um, Brooklyn City Railroad Company, Flappish Avenue Line. The Flappish Avenue trolley was electrified in, uh, that trolley, by the way, started in 1858. 1858, pulled by horses. And by, let's say, um, I would say by 1891, the trolleys became electric with overhead wires. And by the way, if you go to Coney Island today, on either side of Surf Avenue, going stretching way down Surf Avenue in Coney Island, you see these big cast iron poles. Many of them are all rusted and everything. And these are the original cast iron trolley poles that supported the electric wires for the trolleys. And they're all still standing there on Surf Avenue in Coney Island. Well, that's ex excellent. I got to take a look at it next time I go to Coney Island. And, and obviously, this was a, um, a big part of, of the fabric of Brooklyn, considering that the Dodgers get their name from dodging trolleys. That's right. It was named actually for the fans that had to dodge the trolleys 
to cross the streets to get to the ballpark, primarily Washington Park. Um, Ebbets Field, yeah, that too, but the, by the time Ebbets Field was built, um, uh, the, the team already had had the name. Well, I'm not sure. I think they were called the Trolley Dodgers. I'm not sure what year it was. Um, but eventually, of course, the name Trolley was dropped and it was the Brooklyn Dodgers. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It, it, it's fascinating because it's, it's such a, a Brooklyn name uh, once you once you're educated on the whole thing and and uh, hearing Los Angeles Dodgers, I mean, obviously, uh, you, I guess I guess you could put cars before you know uh, auto auto trial, auto Dodgers or something like that. <laughs> but we're not here to talk about Los Angeles. We're here to talk about Brooklyn. And uh, before we let you go, I wanted to get a, into a little bit of your baseball history regarding the borough and and what what you found. Uh, how you would, uh, uh, came about being interested in the game, how you played the game, and, and its current state right now in Brooklyn? Well, um, first of all, I played Little League Baseball. Um, in fact, the, the Little League that I belonged to was originally called the South Highway Little League, and eventually it was changed to the Gil Hodges Little League, named after the Dodger first baseman. And... Um, my last year in Little League, when I was 12 years old, is when the Gil Hodges Little League Stadium opened up um, near Coney Island on Shell Road. Shell Road is like an extension to McDonald Avenue, right near the Belt Parkway. And the first year it opened as the Gil Hodges Stadium, when I was 12, on opening day, Gil Hodges, this was 1957, when I was 12 years old, Gil Hodges... Duke Snyder, and I believe Ed Roebuck, pitcher for the Dodgers, they came on the opening day to christen and open up the new ball field. And somewhere in my basement, where I'm standing right now in my Brooklyn Dodger room, somewhere I have to find it, I have pictures that I took that day of, um, of Hodges and Snyder um, coming, in, uh, coming in in a black limousine and walking into the ballpark. They're not professionally done. I was 12 years old. <laughs> but I remember have, having those pictures somewhere down here. Well, that's great. And uh, obviously, baseball finally got back to Brooklyn on June 25th, 2001. Yeah. And uh, briefly talk about uh, what that feeling was for not only the borough, but for you personally. Well, I was a big Brooklyn Dodger fan, as were many Brooklynites. And I, and I capitalize the word many, many Brooklynites. And uh, that was the first professional baseball game in Brooklyn in 44 years since the Dodgers left at the end of the 57 season. And the team, of course, is the Brooklyn Cyclones, which is a New York Mets farm team. It's a Class A short season team. Short season meaning they start playing um, in mid-June and the season ends usually the first week of September, and then there are playoffs. Hopefully they'll make the playoffs. Right now the Cyclones are in last place, but there's a way to go yet. And um, that opening night in 2001, uh, my wife and I, by the way, have season tickets, and I was wearing my Brooklyn Dodger T-shirt and my Brooklyn Dodger hat. And, Sam, I swear to you, within two minutes of walking into the ballpark, I had to stop counting how many people were wearing Brooklyn Dodger shirts and hats. I stopped counting somewhere between 45 and 50, 
and there were many, many, many more. And even today, this season, even now, the 2013 season, plenty of people are still wearing Brooklyn Dodger shirts and hats. And on August 29th, next month, the Brooklyn Cyclones will commemorate the 100th anniversary of the opening of Ebbets Field 100 years ago. And on that night, August 29th, the first 3,000 fans that enter the ballpark will get a replica 1913 jersey um, with the number 13 on the back. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that night. Uh, I, I'm I'm hoping to get out there, and uh, it it brings up a lot about uh, Brooklyn sports and how there's also um, a, finally a a major professional team back in Brooklyn. What what exactly do you see going on in the borough uh, compared to what what life was like back in the day? Would you would you call what's going on with Brooklyn right now yet another revival of of the town? Um, well, back then baseball was the main game, but I think today in 2013, I think basketball has taken over as um, a sport that a lot of the young kids are playing more than baseball. Although baseball is still pretty high. But, uh, look, we have a major league professional basketball team now, the Brooklyn Nets, which used to be the New Jersey Nets. And this has taken on tremendously at the new Barclays Center. And by, incidentally, the Barclays Center, where the Nets play, this brand-new beautiful arena, is the location where Walter O'Malley wanted to build a new ballpark for the Brooklyn Dodgers. And nothing, nothing was built on that site until now when the Barclays Center was built. After all these years, over 50 years, and nothing was built there. And that's where O'Malley wanted the new ballpark. Why did he want it there? Because there are 11 subway lines, several bus lines, that all interconnect right there at that location including the Long Island Railroad. And if we go back to the 1940s and 50s, when Robert Moses was the... Uh, he had more, Robert Moses had more power than the mayor of New York City, and he handled all the land deals. And Moses was willing to build O'Malley a new ballpark in Queens. And O'Malley said, the Brooklyn Dodgers are not going to play in Queens. And Moses is the one who built the highways, the Belt Parkway, the... Uh, Grand Central Parkway, um, and he fell in love with the automobile. That's why he wanted people to come out. And in the early 40s, Mr. Levitt built Levittown out in Long Island, and a lot of Brooklynites moved out to the suburbs. When all they had to do, if a new ballpark was built at Flatbush and Atlantic Avenue, is to get on the Long Island Railroad, take it to the last stop, get off, and there is the new ballpark for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Because Flappish and Atlantic, where the Barclay Center is, that's the last stop for the Long Island Railroad, right here in Brooklyn. So, anyhow, unfortunately, say, it didn't work out that way. It yeah, didn't exactly. quite work Unfortunately, out. it didn't work out that way. But I have my New York Mets, and I, I have a whole new uh, uh, world of baseball to explore. And and I've been, you know, I've been a fan for many many years now. And and though the Dodgers left, and I'm fascinated with the era. It, it's still, you know, I, I'm enjoying my Mets fandom, if you will. Uh, well, Ron, you... I appreciate you coming on and giving us giving us a little rundown of of Brooklyn and uh, especially the whole Glacier 
uh, stuff. I, I that that is the most fascinating to me because without the way the land is formed, we wouldn't have Brooklyn. And and so I appreciate you very very much coming on and and giving us your insight. Well, my pleasure, Sam. And when you come to Brooklyn, uh, look me up. I'd like to show you around, and uh, we'll have a hot dog at Nathan's. Absolutely. Sounds good. Thank you, Ron. Okay, Sam. Take care now. That's our show. Join us on Monday when Dodgers team historian and publications editor Mark Langell will join us to discuss the Dodgers. Take care, everybody. Thanks for joining us.